Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Transplant's Take on Sport. My name's Lewis Daniels, and joining me today is motivational speaker, author, and winner of multiple medals at the European and World Transplant Games, Darren Corley. Darren tells me about his experience of living with kidney disease for over 20 years, his two kidney transplants, and time spent on dialysis. He also shares his achievements in golf and athletics, as well as his footballing plans for the future. As a motivational speaker, Darren explains the positives of sharing his story for both himself and others and how you may be able to benefit from talking to even a small amount of people about your experiences, so make sure you stick around to find out more. If you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure you press subscribe or follow wherever you normally listen so you don't miss an episode. Darren Corley, welcome to Transplant Take On Sport. Lewis, great to be on with you again. Delighted to see you. You've said again there, and people who may have seen Transplant Hub conversations with the World Transplant Games Federation may have seen myself and Darren recording before and have a chat about similar sorts of topics you might hear in this before. Uh, I'm going to try and not do too many crossovers from that video, uh, but if you'd like to go and watch that after you finish listening to this, then I will leave a link in the show notes. That is Transplant Hub conversations with the World Transplant Games Federation. Now, Darren actually has COVID at the moment, don't you? I do. Very recently, I'd, uh, after two years of avoiding it and being very, very careful, uh, my little boy is in the preschool and I guess he picked it up there and delighted to pass it on to his daddy. And you're on day, th- we've been talking before, day three or four now. You are feeling, you're feeling fine though, aren't you really? Yes, no ill effects, no ill effects. Well, I, I'd like to think I keep myself in good shape and I have taken the vaccines as prescribed by my healthcare team. And so far, so good, really. I don't feel any real ill effects. It's good to hear, and it is. I'm sure people may may find that reassuring that you are currently not experiencing any real symptoms. You were saying before that you may clear your throat every now and then, and I must stress we are doing this remotely. Um, yeah, Darren's in Ireland, I'm in England. Uh, this is remote. Uh, we're doing this a safe way. Yeah, it's great for other patients to know that because certainly it's been good for me. I, I have several friends who have had COVID and who have transplants and. They're okay. And some haven't been perfect. They've had challenges, but most of them have, have got through it uh, 100%. You alluded to it there. You are a kidney transplant recipient. You've had co- uh, you've had two kidney transplants, in fact, uh, in the last uh, 
over 20 years now you've been living with a kidney transplant. When did you first find out there was something wrong with your kidneys? Uh, it was it was a real shock to me, to be honest. I was doing a degree in sports over in the University of Bedfordshire there in England and having a fantastic time. But just I used to get a lot of headaches and then they started to get worse and became blurred vision and it started to affect sports because the, I was doing a degree in sports. And I went to a doctor. Doctor sent me to an optician. An optician spent five minutes looking at my eyes, sent me straight to the ER room and started to get worried then, but still absolutely no idea. And it was only after different tests and uh, procedures that they came back and said, you have kidney failure. So it was totally, totally out of the blue. Full on failure straight away, complete crash landing. Do you remember what your function was? Uh, about 8%, I think. So yeah, that was my story where I went from a healthy sports student to kidney failure in less than 10 days, including dialysis. There was no lead up time. It was plug me in and start dialysis. How did you deal with being diagnosed and going straight onto dialysis so quickly? I, I don't think I did deal with it. I went, I was in a, a shock, like a zombie, just doing what I was told. Disbelief, shock and awe, no idea what was going on because this couldn't be happening to me. Like I am, my life is planned out. I'm going to be, you know, a PE teacher, a fitness instructor, all these great things. And someone was saying, no, no, your kidneys have failed. You're going to be on dialysis. I had to learn all about dialysis you know, that day nearly. So uh, I don't think I dealt with it. That was something that happened later down the road. It's the conversation that you could never really prepare yourself for, isn't it? You, you, you don't expect to be told that your kidneys have, your case, failed. Mine was they're going to fail at some point. You will need a transplant in the future. It's it's a surreal experience. It's surreal, yeah. And it's surreal, again, also looking back, it, when you leave the hospital, for me, that first time after a couple of weeks in hospital, you know, they say, don't worry, we're, we have your treatment protocol in place, you're on dialysis, you'll be fine. But when I walked outside the hospital door, my life was gone that I knew. It was gone. You know, mentally, emotionally, I was a mess. Now, great, they looked after the physical aspects of the disease, but who I was as a person was inalterably changed on that day. And it took a while to get over that. What sort of things would you do to try and come to terms with it and get over that initial shock? Well, it was... I was studying sports, so I went back. I, I continued my college degree. You know, I do my third year. And I suppose I had great friends and you just, you separated it. Three days a week, I hopped on a bus and went to dialysis. The other time I was a sports student. You know, even though I didn't look great, I was a bit off weather. But uh, again, I, I, I don't have any tactics for that side of things because I don't think I dealt with it. I just buried yeah. my head in the sand. How much were you able to play sports during that time when you'd just been starting dialysis and getting onto dialysis, which we will talk more about very soon? I don't think I was, really. A game of pool in the pub, that was yeah. about it. Because I had uh, the big line coming out of my neck and that, you know, for yeah. dialysis, and it was uncomfortable. I was getting used to it. So my self-confidence was on the ground. I had no interest in sport at that time. That's completely understandable. And you mentioned there you had the line in your chest straight away. How long were you on that for? Did you then change to either uh, hemodialysis through a fistula or onto peritoneal dialysis at any point? Yes, within a few months, they, I had the operation for a fistula. And believe it or not, that's 23 years ago, and my fistula is still working perfectly. Even wow. though I don't use it at the moment, it's working spectacularly well. And I know from so many people on dialysis what a difficult time they have with, with fistulas. But for some reason... I got a gold star fistula and uh, it's never given me any trouble. It's always worked brilliantly and it's, it's quite large. So it's a talking point, certainly, but it's, uh, it's been brilliant. 
So can you can you still see it? Is that and I've I've been I've, I'm very grateful to have not been through that at the moment. But do you still? There you go. Darren's just showing me on camera the uh, the bumps that people sometimes have when they have a fistula. That you see a few of. I've seen a few over the years. Yeah, that's my party piece. You know, as we talk about, <laughs> I do do a bit of public speaking, and when you go into schools and you tell people you're going to talk about health or lack of it, and they just go, "What does this young guy know about ill health?" And I start showing my scars, and they just they're blown away by. Yeah, it. and being on dialysis at a very young age, still at, while you're at university, how did that impact your life, and did it limit you in certain ways, or uh, it limited me greatly? Obviously, yeah. Again. It's not, when I'm talking, it's not just the physical aspects of a disease that come to mind. It's the mental and emotional things. Like I was suddenly in a hospital three days a week with people in their 60s, 70s and 80s. The guy beside me in hospital every day, I remember him so well. He was a beautiful man, but he flew for the RAF in World War Two, you know, and, and he's telling me stories about that. Now, I couldn't be more out of place in that hospital. But it, it, that, that's the reality I found myself in. So it, it altered life on all levels. And, you know, I, I, it just, I didn't think about it to get over it. I still, it took years, I think, for me to kind of realise what was actually happening. It's a lot to go through very quickly. It's, I've still, even now, and not been through anywhere near as much as some people go through, you still think, oh, that's actually happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a surreal, as you said, it's surreal looking back. And thinking about, oh, right, I was this perfectly healthy young person and now I'm not. Now I have, I often feel like I have the body of a 70-year-old with kidney disease, you know, because the effects of dialysis, you know, you, you can't drink what you want, you can't eat what you want, you're swollen up a lot of the time. You just have all these other issues that mm -hmm. weren't there before that you have to learn how to live in this new body that it's just challenging. How long was the gap between starting dialysis and then having your first transplant? The gap was about a year and a half. I finished my final year in college, third year, got a basic degree. I came back to Ireland, started dialysis in Ireland. And within about nine months, I got the call for, you know, the gift of life. You know, that spectacular phone call. How did it feel when you received that call? <laughs> Everything with me seems to be shock and awe. But <laughs> I, I, I got up, the phone rang uh, and... My parents were actually close by. So they got up too. They heard the phone ringing. It was six or seven o'clock in the morning. And I just handed them the phone. I said, someone's ringing about a transplant or something. I just didn't figure it out in my head. I was still yeah. asleep. And so they said, quick, we got to go in the car quick. But I kind of, I went and I had a shower and I got ready. And I just, I felt very relaxed, to be honest. And then we rang my uncle, who was a member of the Gardaí, a policeman. And he organized a police escort because I live on the other end of Ireland from Dublin, directly across on the Atlantic Ocean. So we had a police escort right through Dublin. We got there really fast. And again, when you're going in for your first transplant, you're clueless. You have no fear because you don't know what's ahead of you. You're just kind of nervous excitement because you hear everybody talking about this amazing thing. When you get a transplant, all your problems will be over. And I guess that's where I was. I was thinking of the outcome, not the yeah. process, which was where I was at. That's a good way to think about it. And I mean, this next question, I find it interesting asking people who've had uh, received kidneys from cadaveric donors. Um, mine being a live donor, I knew months in advance that a transplant was coming when it was going to be. Do you think it was a benefit for you that it just came straight away from a call and you were going in a police escort to the hospital to have it done? Maybe less time to think. Absolutely, yeah. Was it paralysis by analysis? You'd go through it. For me, I'd go through it in my head a hundred times. Plus, you'd have the added worry of the other person who you probably knew well. Did you? Yep. Yeah. My mom. So your mother, fantastic. 
she's an angel, I'm sure. So oh, yeah. like what uh, you have to think about the other person and all that. So like that's that must be challenging, I think. Whereas for me, the phone rang, get to Dublin and go through it and see what happens at the other side. How far was it out of interest from where you live to Dublin? Uh, between three and a half and four hours. Oh, wow. So it's quite a drive. Yeah, quite a drive. Is that the, the main transplant unit in Ireland then? Yeah, there's just the one for kidneys. It's in the Beaumont Hospital in Dublin, it's called. Now, when you got there and you had the transplant, did everything go well sort of in the immediate future afterwards? Yes, everything seemed to go to plan. Now, there was a worry because there was a gentleman who got the other kidney and that didn't work out, which Ooh. was kind of soul-destroying, obviously, for that man who I didn't get to know. I just knew he was in a bed close to me and it didn't work out. But for me, everything seemed to go to plan and I, I flew through it. Obviously looking back it, it wasn't too bad but if you ask me at the time it's it's torture you know you've got mm. 20 something staples in your belly you've got catheters everywhere you've got lines you've got drips uh, it's not a nice time that first week after having a transplant but you forget because of the happy ever after yeah now we're, we're going to talk more about the sport in between that transplant and your other transplant later on in the podcast but I thought we'd cover all the kidney side and transplant side first. So we're actually going to skip forward a bit. So you had that first transplant in 2000. And unfortunately for you, it failed in 2002. Do you know what caused it to fail? I do. I'm told. It was something called a BK virus, a polyomer virus. Yeah. Which is something that's well recognized now and it's treatable and you can sort yourself out very easily. But at the time, it was 2002, they didn't have anything and they took a biopsy and they said, we're very sorry, but you are going to have to have a, a transplant nephrectomy, which I love telling people is all the pain and suffering of a transplant without the happy ending. Because after you have the operation, you know, the next day you're wheeled into dialysis again and you hear all the familiar blood pressure noises, the monitors, yeah. the, the, the nurses working around you. And it's, it's not a nice place to be. So the virus got into the kidney and that was why it was taken out? Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's one of those, I think there's three that you regularly tested for, BK virus, Epstein-Barr and CMV. It's one of the, I presume they're all, they can all, I presume, I'm not, don't quote me, I'm presuming from why we're tested regularly and from what you said there, that they're sort of three that can cause problems. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, the BK virus, especially the one I had, can be treated now, but they didn't have the experience and the knowledge. And right. The, you know, they're always learning. They're always growing the, the research teams and the pharma companies coming up with better solutions, thankfully. So we're very grateful for that. How do you bounce back and go again after going through a transplant failure? And like you said, the, that the instant change of it being removed and then being wheeled back to dialysis again. Yeah, that was that was torture. That was the low point for me because I knew what was happening. I knew what was going on. You know, this was back to dialysis for the foreseeable future it could be the next five i ended up being nine years on dialysis it's a, wow it's, it's, a, it's a long time and during that time which i'm sure was was tough for you but also worth it to keep going and and have that hope of another transplant has that made you more resilient absolutely that's where i learned about resilience coping skills overcoming adversity was in them nine years because <clears throat> i had no choice that was life. Dialysis was normal life for that time. And I didn't want to get a live-related donor. I just thought I'd wait and get a donor like I did before. <clears throat> but the numbers of people on dialysis are going up all the time. It took a, a, several years for this virus to clear out of my system. Right. So I, couldn't even, I couldn't even go on the list. So it was, a, it was a tough time at the beginning. But that's 
that's where the big lessons come from is is them tough times. I know we've spoken about this on before on uh, Transplant Hub Conversations, but if people want to go and uh, hear more about your online course from victimhood to resilience, then if they go and check out that video, we um, I know we talk more about that in there and people can go and have a look. And now, I know you said your fistula is still going now. Yeah. I presume I'm right in thinking that you went straight back on to using that. Straight back on to using it. Yeah, it worked perfectly. No problems there, thankfully, thankfully. And you, again, managed to keep that same fistula going all the way until your next transplant, which came in 2011. Yes, 2011. Yeah, yeah. Happy day for me, to be honest. I was given a talk in Prague on the 10th of January. And believe it or not, I proposed to my girlfriend uh, up on stage <clears throat> at that talk. And that was great. And then a month later, on the 10th of February, exactly a month later, I was uh, on the road to Dublin to meet my then fiance, Aoife, now my wife. And I got the call for a transplant. So it was a real kind of weird feeling that I just got engaged a month to the day before this. And then I got the call for the transplant. So it was, uh, it was a fantastic feeling to know that I could get married because obviously yeah. I didn't want to get married on dialysis because the next day after your wedding, it's just back into dialysis again. Back to reality. Now, now we could plan for a different type of future. How do your emotions compare 11 years on? Well, compared to 11 years before that, when you got the call again? Uh, no difference. Uh, it was just, it was a great feeling in that I was filled with hope. Now, at the same time, because I knew what was coming, I knew there was going to be a lot of pain and suffering going through the actual transplant. And that's just one of the pain points you have to deal with as someone with kidney failure. <clears throat> but on the other side, after nine years of not being able to travel, not being able to eat what I wanted, not being able to drink what I wanted, these were all things I could now look forward to with, yeah. with a sense of reality. We're going to do it. And I did. <laughs> we, I know you t spoke earlier about it being mental, as well, the mental challenges as well as physical with a transplant. Would you say you were more mentally prepared the second time? Uh, yes, yes, definitely. Because I think the skill set I built up over all the adversity of over all them years on dialysis really will stand to me forever, no matter what happens. Because there will come a time where I will be back on dialysis. And I'm okay with that because I know I've got through it before and I know I can get through it again. So that's that's what resilience is, really. It's kind of looking back, seeing what you went through and having the confidence to go through anything again. There's, there's very little that could get me up or down because I've been through a lot mentally and emotionally, definitely. So I have that kind of inner self-belief in myself that I will get through anything else in the future. It's a great attitude that you've got there. I think that people listening to this will take a lot from that, how you've dealt with, how you're speaking about how you've dealt with everything over the last 22, 23, 24 years since you were first diagnosed. Um, it's something that you've said there, dialysis, you know that you might have to go back onto it again and you're absolutely fine with that. That's the bit I'm well, scared, apprehensive about the prospect of that in the future, knowing that, I'm still young and there's, there's yeah. there is probably going to be another one in the future, another transplant in the future. That is a scary point. But like you, like you say, it's, it, it's worth it for the eventual outcome and all the things that you get to do again, once you've, once you had a transplant. Yeah. I think once you, you have to accept where you are in life and you have a very successful transplant as do I, uh, there was a long time where I didn't have a successful transplant. I had to dialysis. So I had to accept that reality and accept the person I was for as long as that person was there, you know, and then when I got a transplant, I could grow into a different person. I could take all the, the resilience and the coping skills and the life lessons from that time but, and bring it into this better version of myself, this better reality I'm now living. 
obviously sport's been a big part of your life. You were studying at university. Once you've been discharged from hospital, what sort of things did you do to build your fitness levels back up again? Well, funnily enough, I got the transplant in February and there was a local half marathon happening. And they asked me and several other people to be kind of ambassadors for it. So I'd be ambassador, say, someone who went through transplants and dialysis and now look at him, he can do a half marathon. So myself and my wife did that in August. So about six months afterwards, I ran slash walked a half marathon. So that was a great thing to get me into shape again. That was a great thing to get back walking slowly and to get back jogging and to, to slowly and progressively move forward. So that was definitely something is to tie yourself into something down the road that you can work towards. But of course, the important thing is to <clears throat> work slowly and slowly and slowly. Go at your own pace. Let your doctors know how you're doing things, what you're doing. I think talk to other transplant patients so that they can advise you and the main advice you get is take it easy. Don't rush it. Don't go too fast because obviously your whole stomach has been cut. So it takes time to heal and knit together strongly and, and properly. Now, exercise has a big part to play in that, but slowly and incrementally. It's one of those things as well I noticed where I went back to cricket six months after my transplant because that was when I was told I could go back and I'd gradually built up. I started walking and, yep. and running before that. But I didn't run until six months. So it's probably about six or seven months when cricket came around. Um, and you think you're ready, and you mm. feel like, I'm back, I'm ready to go, and it feels fine, you're aching afterwards, obviously, but then probably another six months later, or a year later, you go, now I'm ready, yeah. once you've gone back and you've noticed that you've done it again, Yeah. and you kept going for that, kept going for a year. It's something people kind of forget, everyone dreams about getting a transplant when you're on dialysis, and they think, when I get a transplant, bang, I'll be fit and healthy and flying and ready to go. But the reality is you just had a massive operation. So you feel worse than ever for the first few weeks mm. and slowly you grow out of that. So it's not, it's not this massive quick fix. It takes mm. time to, to learn and develop in this new body you have again. So give it the time. Yeah, you, sort of, you think you're fully fit and then you keep going. And then, like I said, a year later, you, you realize, no, this is what fully fit is. Mm. Definitely, yeah. Brilliant. And keep it on the sporting theme. The transplant games... European trans European transplant games, World Transplant Games, they've been a big part of your life post transplant. You built, you actually went after your first one, didn't you? Yes, it went quite to... quite soon after your first one. You went to the that be the Worlds, weren't it, Japan? Exactly. Yeah. What are like from being on dialysis and thinking that I never play sport again? Here I was a year later representing Ireland in Japan at the World Transplant Games, and that was it was a spectacular experience. You know, on so many for so many reasons. Uh, because I didn't think I could play sport again, and now I am playing sport. I had no role models. You know, my only role models were the older people I met in hospitals. Suddenly, I was surrounded by young people, fit, active, positive, for the first time. So it really created a transformation in me as a person, seeing other people with transplants and kidney failure living these lives kind of full out, you know, which is something I hadn't done. I thought of myself as a sick person. So that was a, a big milestone for me, getting over that that mental hump i guess was that the first time you'd seen people around your age who'd had a transplant absolutely yes it is quite a key time isn't it when you see you see other people doing what are do, doing amazing things and playing the sports that you love to play in the same position as you you do look at those people as role models and inspirational people to go and follow yeah role models for me are one of the biggest biggest kind of things to look for in terms of recovery and becoming the person you you want to be 
like I was so the first event I did, I'll tell you a little story. I was going doing cycling. I was doing the road race. Now I brought my bike. I did a small bit of training, very little. Like when I was young, I cycled to school every day. So I just thought, yeah, it'd be lovely. I get to see a bit of Japan. I get to meet people. We'll have a nice chat while we're cycling. I thought all this in my head. <clears throat> and when we got to the event, I saw all these young people getting the bikes ready. And I thought, aren't they great helping their parents? But it wasn't. They were just <laughs> athletes like me. And the race started, you know, and I went as hard as I could. And I went flat out. And it was really 33 degrees heat. It was torture. And I came third, right? I came third last. I got absolutely destroyed by just about everybody. You know, it was such a wake-up call to me. <laughs> that uh, sheer embarrassment because... My mentality was, you know, I'm a sick person and, you know, we'll have to take it easy and don't go too hard, you know. So that was that was a, a real eye opener. And you, you said earlier on that you represented Ireland at the World Transplant Games. How did it feel to represent Team Ireland to compete for your country? Ah, uh, Spectacular. Yeah. As good as I was at sport, like I had kind of interprovincial titles in boxing and handball and different things. But <clears throat> I'd never have got to represent Ireland, you know, to get the tracksuit, to get the suit the t-shirts, all this Team Ireland, you know, it was a remarkable, remarkable experience, something I'm incredibly grateful for. It's great to get sick when you get these kind of positive side effects, <laughs> is the way I looked at it. But yeah, it was a great, great, great feeling. Even when the kit arrives, I don't know about you, but for me, that's that's another motivation. I got my, my transplant cricket kit, England transplant cricket kit. I got, it was just before my first session. Um, I couldn't train. I'd just gone along to just to be there and see what, what everything's like. That was a big motivation, seeing the badge and oh, initials yeah. and that sort of thing. Definitely, definitely. It's a heartwarming thing that you, a lot of people don't get, 99% of people don't get to uh, experience putting on your your uh, native shirt, I guess, as such. It's a, it's a real honour. Even while you were on dialysis, you still went to the Transplant Games. Uh, I've got written down here that the, there might be more in there as well. Hungary in 2002, Slovenia in 2004, Hungary again in 2006, Germany in 2008. Home games in Ireland in 2010, which I'm sure we're going to talk about more about your success there. I'll leave that for now. Yeah. People can, list, can keep listening and uh, we'll hear more about that further on. How did it compare competing on dialysis with a functioning transplant? Well, I, I found myself being quite healthy on dialysis. You know, I, my mindset was kind of becoming more and more positive. And so uh, because the games were abroad, all the dialysis was organized, which meant I could... I didn't have to worry about that. I could go and enjoy myself and kind of do my best at the sport, which I, I always did. I'm pretty competitive. Now, I love the social side of it, but as soon as the, the bell goes, as they are, the, the whistle is blown, it's, it's go hard as you can and do your absolute best. You know, and luckily, I did very well in a lot of games, and uh, I'd be grateful to them for that. But it, it, to be honest, for me, the games was all about the people. The Irish team were always kind of lively, fun. We had sing-songs every night. We, had just, <laughs> we just had a great sense of camaraderie. And some of my best friends, groomsmen at my wedding, you know, all these people came out of going to these games and meeting these people. It definitely seems like a big family feel. It's something I'm looking forward to experiencing this summer. Yeah, in Oxford, isn't it? Yes, the yeah Europeans are in Oxford, British ones are in Leeds. Okay, okay. Yeah, there's a lot going on. So I, I'm not even sure, can I go this year? Well, we were hoping to go. Obviously, but with COVID and with all the restrictions, it's kind of messed up a lot of plans that a lot of people have. So, mm. I, of course, I'd love to go to the ones in England because it's only over the road. It's only a, an hour and a half yeah. away on, a, on an airplane. So <clears throat> we're still thinking about it and planning, but oh, it's a great feeling to go to the games and be surrounded by people that you, you have something in common. 
right? You don't know anything about them, but you know you have shared experience and straight away you're automatically friends. And that's that's a great feeling to have around the game. I'm really looking forward to going. It's been it's been it'll be three years by the time that comes around since being eligible to go, but like you say, things have things have got in the way and stopped yeah. all the plans that have that have been going on. Hopefully see you there. And then once you've had your second transplant, did you then notice a big difference in how easy it was to compete and get through the events compared to being on dialysis beforehand? You've gone transplant, dialysis, transplant, and still competed. Uh, I haven't went to another game in the last few years. Ah. So I haven't had that experience, <clears throat> mainly due to the fact I was getting married. Like, And then the games were all in Australia one year. There were, you know, there were yeah. foreign holidays that cost an awful lot of money. And we were saving up for a wedding. And next thing you have kids. And then they have, you know, life kind of got in the way. So I had to keep fit in other ways, kind of more locally. Have you been able to do much sport since second transplant? And keep keep doing things away from the games themselves? Yeah. The, the problem with the transplant is you have a big scar and you have a kidney in your belly. Which means you can't play kind of contact sports. Which is something I always loved to play. So that was that was a difficult thing to get used to. So I played touch rugby. <clears throat> I'm back playing soccer now, but it's nice. It's relaxed. It's not too serious. So they're the two things I really love playing. Are you playing in a a transplant team football? Well, yeah. Again, I've been training with the transplant team Ireland, but with lockdown, all that has stopped. Yeah. So we're very eager to get back, get back training, get back to that uh, team ethos that we we found so fantastic. And to get to go abroad to one of these games. Now, your main sports, you've said there, that we're going to talk about today, football. We're going to go on to athletics and golf. We'll start with athletics, as that is, as we just talked about the games, that links in quite well. It's a big part of it. When did you get into athletics? Was it through the games? 100% through the games, yeah. And I had to learn how to start off the blocks. I had to do the training, learning about plyometrics, learning about sprinting. Totally different to anything I've ever done. I was always into more team sports. <clears throat> So I had a local guy here who won All-Irelands in athletics. So he was training and coaching me. My first ever race was in Japan at the Transplant Games. <clears throat> so it was a, it's a remarkable thing that I'd never done this sport before. So we had trained, all right, on the tartan tracks. And I had the spikes and I learned how to use the, the blocks. But it was, wasn't until the actual event that I got to actually compete against uh, a real-life athletes so it it was a challenge but something i welcomed and i loved to this day my favorite medal that i've ever won is at the world games back then because it was all new it was all novelty the competition was really high so to get a bronze medal was was just fantastic fantastic feeling for me it's funny i've, I've several gold medals since then but it's still i always think of two bronze medals from the 200 and 400 games are the 100 and 200 in Kobe, Japan. That's something I always find interesting to hear. And I, I, I like it. The fact that you've said that you, your favourite medals are those bronze medals, not the gold ones, because that's the first one that's got you started. I, I love hearing that. Yeah, because there's so much that goes behind them games. The fact that I met role models for the first time, I kind of found my community because the transplant team, even the transplant dialysis games, any of these games you go to, it's a sense of community. You stick together. <clears throat> you know, I never got to talk to anyone about the issues around kidney failure. I never seen a psychologist or had a conversation with people. So being around other athletes for me, where you just sit around having a chat, all the issues come up naturally. How did you deal with that? Oh, I did this. What did you do about that? I did this and that. And you learn so much and you're sharing. So you're helping them. They're helping you. And that was invaluable. 
Are you a pure sprinter when it comes to athletics? Yes. Yes, I did. Uh, I did the ball throw. I loved that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was it. I did the long jump a few times, but I had no skill. Uh, I had no training done for that. Whereas something like the ball throw, I played handball, which is indoor handball, like with a small softball. So I a lot of power there due to years of boxing training and, and the handball. So I usually did very well in the ball throw, which is just mm. a sport I naturally seem to be good at. You mentioned your bronze in Japan. Now, I, I sort of teased that we were going to talk about Dublin earlier on, your home games. It went quite well for you, didn't it, really? It did, yeah. Dublin. It was funny. They put the transplanted and the dialysis patients together for the 100-meter sprint because there wasn't like a huge amount of people. <clears throat> so there was, I think it was eight of us in total. So I, to win that race was fantastic. It went against what the games was about to show the benefits of transplantation when a dialysis patient won it. But that was kind of... <laughs> Something was brushed over, but <clears throat> like I won the the, the the games obviously in Ireland that hundred meters, and you're on the podium, and the Irish anthems is played, and the flag goes up, and that's just a, a feeling again. That's a memorable, memorable feeling. Very, very positive for me to to think back to that, to stand on a podium, to see the Irish flag. You just don't think you only see things like that on telly. Yeah. So it was a great feeling to to be the person standing there and uh, kind of witnessing that personally what a moment was it even i know you said the bronze is your, your favorite one was that gold even sweeter that the fact that it was on home soil your home games it was it was sweeter in so many ways yeah the the, the other games in japan was sweet because it was also new it was novel and all the other positive side effects of them games were something i treasure whereas this is a games i trained very hard i was competing against you know there's a video of it, of it out there somewhere and it was real tight real pushing as hard as i possibly could just to win it on the line and then of course to have the the, <clears throat> the podium finish in Ireland with the, the Irish flag you know it's something I'm very proud of do you remember what time you ran it in absolutely not <laughs> I don't I, I wouldn't think it was fast I, I don't know I never remember time for any events I have no interest in the time side of things because uh you just you go as fast as you can you do your yeah. absolute best you don't leave it behind you kind of as we say and the result of that is you you finish as good as you will finish Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So the time is irrelevant in some ways. Yeah. Do you still regularly train now? Not specifically for athletics, but I find like in things like the touch rugby I play, the soccer, you're continuously sprinting and changing direction. You're yeah. constantly... Indirectly, I think I'm in pretty good shape. So when I do go to the games and you focus your training on the specific events, you know, it will come pretty quick, I hope. Yeah, you'd think so. And you've linked into it quite nicely there, bringing it on to from athletics, team sports. Football is another one. You, I know from reading the information you've sent to me, you've played Gaelic football as well. Have you got a preference of which one? Well, Gaelic football is a lot more physical than soccer. Yeah. So uh, that had to be ruled out nearly straight away. My... My non-existent career in Gaelic football, and no, it's just it's a sport in Ireland that we we love dearly. It goes to the it goes to the bone, to the heart, certainly. So uh, I'm a supporter of it only, not a participant anymore. Whereas soccer, I play five sides, you know, a couple of times a week, and it it is going to be one of the highlights, hopefully, of my transplant life is to play, participate at the transplant games as part of a team. Yeah, it's yeah. something I miss terribly not being part of a team like looking after your friends sticking together battling hard as a group winning and losing together all the the positives uh, that come from team sports i missed out on that because generally the games are about individual sports non-contact <clears throat> so the soccer is something i am really really ambitiously trying to get involved in yeah there's, there's just something different about being in a team isn't there? all the sports that i play have played over the years which is football and cricket, uh, team sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you're all in it together. There's, uh, you can all bounce off each other. There's a team spirit, camaraderie, all that sort of thing. And it's just, it's it's a great feeling. Yeah, I look forward to like half times where you're two goals down and trying to to pump people up, get them going, trying to tactically change things to work together to, to create the outcome you're looking for. So I, I'm... It's definitely on my list to do things. I'm in my 40s now, you know, so time is tipping along. But uh, <clears throat> I, I'd really look forward to playing against other teams in soccer, you know. Do you know if Ireland are going to be putting a team into the uh, European Games this summer? Uh, the chances are very high, yeah. We're not back training because of the COVID restrictions. But <clears throat> I think people like myself are training individually. You know, they're playing with their own little teams at home. Yeah. Playing five-a-side, things like that. Because, uh, oh no, we're we're... There's some very strong characters, very eager to, to, to get going, to get a bus load together and get on that bus, get going. I'm yet to play transplant football. I'm part of the Nottingham team and the uh, Team GB through transplant sport. I've got some a selection day coming up, which I'll be going to. Do, yeah. um, I've not actually seen the standard yet. Have you Have you seen any sort of transplant football other than your training? Other than the training? No, I haven't. Now, there is some stuff online, but it's very hard to gauge, gauge from that. But... Uh, no, uh, look, nobody will fear Anthony. It's nothing to do with that. It's about participation. And if you do well on the day, you do well. If you don't, you don't. You'll be shaking hands and having a drink afterwards. It, it all looks like it, it looks like a great thing to be part of. And now that it's 
because it, I don't know it, it, it's like it's the national sport, really, isn't it? It's um, yeah, definitely it's so big on a global scale that yeah. it's it's it'd be a, an honor and a pleasure to be part of that. And Lewis, I'm afraid to say it would be the biggest honor and pleasure to uh, score a goal against England and beat <laughs> them. I'll just put that out there now. Don't want to don't want to raise the competitiveness of the two nations, but oh, it'd be a dream come true to beat England in soccer. <laughs> uh, it's not a thing we can do in Ireland too often. <laughs> Uh, your other your other sport that we'd uh, we'd say we discussed today that you've taken part in at the Transmac Games is golf. Is that something you played for a long time and growing up as well? A small bit growing up, but it's something I always played a little bit. Yeah, I, I always kind of kept in touch with it, so I'd be okay at it. <clears throat> and going to the Transmac Games in Dublin, I played golf. It was the first time really. So, and I won a gold medal, and it was it was tough because I I was very high handicap. I've eighteen handicap, well seventeen I think at the competition. And I went round the course uh, at 17 at my handicap. So that's why I played awful well that day. Just Everything just kind of clicked. So I love golf because, again, it's, it's a way of having a communication and a conversation with the person you're playing with. You know, it's a great way to spend a few hours with a friend. It's relaxed. You can open up. You can get stuff off your chest. You know, in Ireland here, we love going to the pub. But, of course, if you've got kidney failure, the pub isn't really the right place for socialising. <clears throat> so I avoid that. Uh, and in return, things like golf are fantastic. And I, I have so many friends that play golf and we go out and we enjoy the conversation. And golf is often secondary. So I, I would definitely get back to golf at the Transplant Games. Yeah, I'd enjoy that. My experience of sport, long, or it's the right way to put this, sport that lasts a long time outside, cricket is my main sport. Yeah. And golf, similar, outside for a long period of time, it is really good mentally, isn't it, to clear your head and just you're outside for so long. Yeah, you've said it there. It has, it kind of ticks a lot of boxes. As in, it's a good walk. Fair enough. Uh, it's a sport. It's skillful, uh, and it's very sociable. I think that's a, a thing most people with kidney failure need is the social aspects of sport to have be able to have a conversation, a chat, to feel normal, and that's through golf you can really do that. We've mentioned your highlights in um, athletics with your your bronze medals in Japan and your gold in Dublin. Would you say you've got a golfing highlight over the years? Golf and highlight, wow. <clears throat> Nothing pops up. I think I have a picture of myself on the podium wearing stupid looking trousers, winning the gold medal. <laughs> uh, but uh, that that has to be the highlight because I've won a few local events over the years, you know, like open days and things like that. But but again, it's 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 the feeling of competing against others around Europe and coming out on top, which which it's more luck than anything. You just do the best you can do and wherever you finish, you finish. But again, to be standing on a podium with the Irish flag, <clears throat> winning a gold medal, is uh, I just I'm so grateful to have these experiences in the in the back of my mind because as someone with kidney failure, you have loads of bad experiences, yeah. loads of difficulties, loads of challenges. So to try and balance them out with the positives of having kidney disease is something that's very worthwhile and worth endeavouring to kind of create them experiences. I know the last few years have been quite tough for all of us, really, especially in the position that people like us are in with transplants and being immunosuppressed have you been able to play much golf recently no not a lot no not a lot because again with children and with lockdowns and uh, everything has been such a mess it hasn't been worthwhile to be joining up golf clubs while I hadn't uh, they couldn't be certain about playing a lot so <clears throat> we've left it to this year hopefully get back now in the summer again yeah as you say it's something you want to do at the transplant games again and try and it, it I don't is. know would you like to bring your handicap down, that sort of thing? It is, and I would, but I have a feeling it won't happen for a few years until my kids, who are now kind of three and five, 
when they're a bit older, I'd hope to get them yeah. golfing. And so together we can kind of share the benefits of it. Because again, kids are number one. At the, health is number one, maybe. But kids are certainly up there with it. So you want to make sure you spend as much time as possible with them. Absolutely. Definitely. And I'm sure I, people will agree with me in what I'm saying here that you, you've spoken very well throughout this. And if people have seen the Transplant Hub Conversations video, you speak very well in there as well. And your attitude towards life with a transplant life and dialysis is fantastic and something that I think people will find inspirational. And you, you'll be a role model for people who have who've had transplants as well. You are a motivational speaker, which I'm sure I'll have said in the intro, and you mentioned it earlier. When did you start doing that? Well, that happened quite by accident. Believe it or not, I'm involved in what's called the Lions Club, which is a worldwide organization. It's one of the biggest service charity organizations in the world. And the reason I got involved was because when I got kidney failure, they came to me, members of the local community here who were in the Lions Club, and said, is there anything we can do for you? Do you need a car for dialysis? Do you need money? Do you need something? <clears throat> Luckily, I didn't need anything. I have a great family here. Uh, but when I turned 30, they asked me about joining. And so I thought, yeah, I would join. But I didn't want to go raising money for kind of other charities because I spent a lot of the time raising money for the kidney, the Irish Kidney Association and different charities like that. So they said, what about going into schools, giving talks on donor awareness? So I started that. <clears throat> and I, I don't know, did you experience this? But when you have kidney failure, you often feel useless as in you're not a productive, useful member mm, of society. Yeah. And when I started giving the talks and getting these huge rounds of applause and the teachers coming up to me saying, you really help these kids. You talk to them about adversity and how to overcome it. You know, it's real beneficial. You should keep it up. I kind of felt, wow, I feel useful. I feel productive. I feel like I'm, a, I'm doing and contributing to society. And maybe, yeah. that, maybe that's why you're doing the podcast. To, you, you get that feeling. You don't think about it at the time, but when you think back, wow, yeah, I wasn't in a great place. You know, I was doing bits of part-time jobs, but <clears throat> this was something I really, really enjoyed and loved. And it was very positive for both the students and for me. I completely agree with you. Like I've, I went into my uh, my old sixth form to do a talk about my experiences. I was still quite new to transplant life then. It was probably only about eight months in. In fact, no, it can't have been because the pandemic came before that. It must have been about six months. Okay. And then doing this as well, this podcast, it's, I find it quite therapeutic. How beneficial has it been for you? I think it's been enormous. Yeah, it's been absolutely enormous because doing a few free talks, you, my whole life changed because of it. Because <clears throat> from doing them talks, the Irish Kidney Association asked me to speak at the European Parliament. So that was a remarkable thing to have to. I was speaking in front of MPs and patient organizations and pharmaceutical companies. <clears throat> And the talk went so well that I got asked to go to Paris and to Strasbourg and to, to Germany. I went to Sweden. I went to Prague. So like it started a kind of part-time career in public speaking, which I've kept at. And it's been life-changing. Like the, the experiences I've had from speaking, the ability to travel to all these different places, to get standing ovations in pharmaceutical companies because I'm showing them what they do helps so many people. It has a very real impact because a lot of times people are working in these companies and they hate their job and they don't know why they're doing it. Well, they do. They're doing it only for money. And after I speak, I kind of show them that everything they do, every product is a person. <clears throat> so they, they're intrinsically motivated to, to work better at their job, to really be more focused because they know everything they touch, everything that goes past their hands ends up inside or attached to a person. And I've been told that's incredibly motivating. So 
they start to work not just because their boss is looking over their shoulder or because they're getting paid a load of money, but they're working for the patient. And the end result is we, we are only alive today because of the work they do. Like <clears throat> if my grandfather got kidney failure at 20 years of age, like I did, he'd have been dead at 21. And here we are today. I'm 23 years with kidney failure and I'm happy and healthy. It's, it's it, like you say, I'm, I'm just thinking about what you said, taking it all in. It's like you say, I think it is very easy when whatever job you do to almost, you, I don't want to say go through the motions, but to do the job, obviously do the job to the best of your ability, but forget why you're doing the job and what is happening as a result of your work. Like you say, with these pharmaceutical companies are preparing and creating all these drugs and everything that's going to be used in the future for people like us and other people who need them. And you can easily forget where that's going. Yeah. They do. They often think the product, when it goes into the back of that lorry, that's the end of the product life cycle. But it's not. The end of the cycle is a happy and healthy patient. <clears throat> and they, they need to be reminded of that. And every patient, every kind of patient, like you, like me, we're, we're well fit to stand up and talk. Everyone should be going into the local school or business and trying to talk about donor awareness, talk about life struggles that everyone is going through. Like We, can, we have these skills because of our adversity that other people don't have the coping skills and the resilience that comes through adversity. So if you can share it, well then try and get out there and share it. I completely agree. And like you, you do motivational speaking, that's on a, on a larger scale. Um, and I know we spoke when we did, when we filmed for the world transport games federation about how useful it can be for people to speak about their experiences like you've just alluded to there with people to go into the local schools now, obviously, motivational speaking, there's bigger audiences and you've been into European Parliament and it's taken you places that you may never have been without that. Yeah. But if you bring this down to a smaller scale, how important and beneficial do you think it can be for people to even just share their story with their family, with their friends that may not know the full extent and to talk and open up about those sort of things? I think it's a form of therapy, really. If you can stand up and try and help other people, you can start to believe that you must be in a pretty good place if you can help someone else. <clears throat> and on the other side of donor awareness, the more we spread that, the more people we help. Now, one of the most, I don't know, sad in some ways, but also very positive stories I've ever had was a, a young guy came up to me in a shop just out of the blue. He said, oh, you're, you're Darren Cawley. You're the guy that spoke in our school a few years ago. And I said, all right. Yeah, I didn't remember, obviously. And he said, uh, very sadly, one of his best friends passed away in a car accident. But he said he was carrying a donor card and a lot of people's lives were saved. Heart transplant, liver transplant, two kidneys. All because he was carrying a donor card and he was carrying the donor card because of you, he said to me. And I, I got quite emotional. Like So there's people alive today because I stepped outside my comfort zone and went into schools and did these talks. <clears throat> so I think that's just one case. Like I've spoken in hundreds of schools. So if everybody could do that in their own local area. You know, you don't have to speak to big companies or go to conferences or anything like that. Just speak to 30 or 40 kids in the school, educate them on the realities of living with adversity, which will help them because they learn about how to cope and that life is this roller coaster where good things are followed by bad things, by good things, you know, and you have to learn to roll with it. But indirectly, you could be helping people you'll never know about, you know. So it's, it's, it's heartwarming, it's endearing, it's... 
it's confidence building for the person speaking and you're helping other people. You're of service to other people. So I highly advocate for more and more people with health issues to get out there and spread their story. Very well said. And little plug it. If anybody wants to come and share their story on this platform, on this podcast, please do get in touch by emailing transplantstakeonsport at gmail.com or by getting in touch on social media, uh, Instagram and Facebook are at Transplants Take On Sport Pod and Twitter at TTOS Pod. To get in touch, let me know a bit about yourself. I'd love to have as many people on here as possible. Um, and the people you've had on already, like they're, they're, they're amazing uh, bits of advice and guidance I've got from listening to the different people on your podcast. Like You've got some fantastic guests. And not just because they're interested in sports, but it's just that <clears throat> they've went through the adversity that a lot of people are too afraid to talk about, really but we can still learn from them. Even sharing your story in, like even just talking to one person, I think it helps get emotions out that you may not have voiced or thought about before when you sort of think about it on a deeper level. You start to understand yourself more as well. Does that, make, is that, does that fit? It absolutely fits. And this is a, a podcast about sports and transplants. And we, we go through the medium of sport, I feel, to uncover kind of who we are and what we do and how we do it because we communicate with people through sports. <clears throat> that's, that's our vehicle, I guess. And, uh, but it doesn't have to be sport. Uh, going for a walk with a friend around the block is health enhancing, but also mentally and emotional. To be able to unburden some of the challenges and stresses you have to someone else is incredibly rewarding and helpful. And talking to other people about organ donation and the experiences can encourage them and other people who they may then go and talk to to become an organ donor i know we're now in the opt out system in england but you still need to make people aware of your of your wishes what you are what you'd like to do now in 2021 you decided to celebrate the 10th anniversary of your second transplant with a bit of a challenge and honor your donor do you want to tell us a bit more about that yeah a lot of coincidence came into play there i was after getting a book for christmas on a guy named wim hoff who's a crazy man who does a lot of swimming in icy 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 cold water and myself and a friend decided on the first of february was my birthday to get into the atlantic ocean so the first of february is kind of the coldest month in the sea i think so we were going to get in for a couple of minutes every day and i decided to do it for my donor because i was 10 years transplanted i got the transplant on the 10th so i was just going to do 10 days and it was incredibly hard because it was minus seven wind chill outside the water and the inside the water was kind of three or four degrees. And it was horrible. I didn't enjoy it at all. It was full of, as we say, pain. It was a painful experience. But when you get out of the water, you feel exhilarated. You've achieved something, you know, because after a year and a half of lockdown, I needed something because I'm a people person. I'm outside. I'm always kind of trying to interact with people. And that all stopped. You know, with kidney failure, yeah. you have to isolate, stop mixing with people. And so to do something like this, a challenge, step out of the comfort zone was was something very challenging, but also full of kind of life lessons for me, full of positives. What was it that made you decide to do this by getting into freezing cold water in the Atlantic Ocean every day for 10 days? Well, I was inspired by the book, certainly. And the fact that it was 10 years transplanted, you know, I, I think it's just I needed a challenge. I needed yeah. something, something outside to shake me up. To kind of because we've grown up where I'm just used to these sort of challenges are normally given to me by my health whereas this time I started taking it on by myself you know to try and to get in there and I think it was inspired to that it, when I thought about it it was pain and exhilaration 
<clears throat> so it's the pain of getting into the water was like the pain of dialysis all them years. And then the exhilaration of getting a transplant was that feeling, was that exhilaration of getting out of the ice cold water and getting warm again. So there's a lot of symbolism there for me. And it was great national newspapers kind of put up pictures about it and local papers and that. So it, it creates awareness again about donor awareness, which is always positive. How did you keep going? Because I'm sure it was difficult and as much as you said, the exhilaration afterwards, but getting yourself to the point where you maybe like seven, eight days in where you're thinking, here we go again, we've got to go, I've got to go and get yeah. freezing water. How do you manage to get yourself to go and do that over and over again? Yeah, it was snowing one day. It was snowing heavily <laughs> outside. And we had to take off our gowns and get into the cold water in the snow. Thankfully, I have a picture of that to prove it. No, the one reason I got through it was because I had a, a buddy with me, a friend. So right. an accountability partner, so important in sports too, that you have someone to join you, someone to accompany you, someone to uh, motivate you. Now, would I have done it if he wasn't with me? Absolutely not. <laughs> but we had a challenge. We had a deal. We ended up doing 100 days together. A hundred days in a row. Yeah, we never missed a day. <clears throat> so that was a, a, a remarkable achievement. Now, so I may have misread the ten when I was looking this up. Looking this up. Well, I initially it was ten for the ten years transplanted, and to kind of pay homage to my donor and their family. But we just kept going. Yeah, it was kind of a little addiction there for a while. So uh, yeah, that was a challenge, a big, big challenge. But we need things like that every now and again. We need to be shook out of our existence to, to feel life, to feel a bit of energy and enthusiasm again. Absolutely. Is this something you do again? I do it regularly now. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. If you had an ice bath, I, I know I can get into it. Yeah, I know I could do it. And I could stay in there. You know, I, at every morning, if I have a shower, I'll always turn the water to cold for, for trying for do for a minute or two. If you look it up, the health benefits are massive for things like this. It's also, like you said, it's obviously it's the mental side of making yourself do it each day and being determined to go and get in and do it honor your donor and then he kept going for 100 days it also the there have been physical benefits to that as well by getting in the ice icy cold water every day yeah funnily i i never had a cold or a flu that year nothing like That's no no runny noses no general flus and like i didn't do it as much this year because it is with two kids it's it's difficult to try and get someone to mind the kids while you go down to the sea to jump in and then come back and clean up and have a shower <clears throat> so it's not something i continued I just do it every every few times a week. It's kind of yeah. the way we do it. But of course, now I have COVID, so I haven't done it this week yet. But uh, I credit I credit the fact that I don't have any ill effects from COVID too because of things like this. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But <laughs> credit to you for still still doing this, uh, even when you your voice probably it probably isn't one hundred percent. Not one hundred percent. I have tickle in my throat. Yeah, I have this tickle that's really annoying me, but. We, we we love a challenge. I'll do a bit of talking because back in back for Series 2, um, a regular feature now of Series 2 is the Transplant Take On Sport quiz, <laughs> which uh, you, let's say you had mixed feelings about before doing this. Yes. Uh, so each week I will ask the guest four questions based on a sport of their choosing, which in Darren's case is boxing. There'll be one which is higher question, one true or false, one what happens next, and one who am I. The aim is to score as many points as possible, and I'll be keeping score as the podcasts go by. I think okay. we've had a four, a three, and a two so far out of four. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, all your questions are on boxing. Question one, which is higher? Um, which father, this is your question, which father and son duo have more professional wins? Chris Eubank and Chris Eubank Jr. or Nigel and Connor Ben? I think I'd have to go with Eubank. 
You would be correct. The Eubanks Eubank, have more yeah. wins. Um, Chris Eubank Senior, forty-five. Chris Eubank Junior, thirty-two, which makes seventy-seven. Wow. Uh, Nigel Ben, forty-two, and Connor Ben, who's only actually he's only a couple of years older than me. He's had less fights than uh, Chris Eubank Junior. Won them all. He's won twenty, and he gives them sixty-two. So one out of one so far. The Great. Eubanks have come out. Well, on I'm, top. I'm a big fan of Eubank Ben, Steve Collins. They were all around the same era when I was in college, kind of the late nineties, and they were they were. Just the most amazing fighters. I loved watching boxing then. Like Steve Collins was a, a warrior, really. And so was Chris Eubank. He talked this talk, but underneath it, he was a man of steel. Like I had huge respect for him. I didn't like the showboating, but then he could back it up. So like big fan of them guys. I've started watching a bit more boxing in the last sort of four years. And it's, it's, it's good to watch. It's good to watch. I think it went downhill. I don't like MMA, to be honest, at all. I, I just... I just don't like it. You can punch somebody on the ground when they're defenseless before the referee can get you. I just, I, do, I like, I like, yeah, I like the cleanness, the manliness, the just use your hands, man against man, same weight, same age, same categories, whatever, and the baby, the best man win. Our woman, of course. Question two is on a big boxing star at the moment, arguably one of the greatest of all, well, the greatest, one of the greatest of the generation. Uh, question two is a true or false? Uh, here's your statement. Tyson Fury featured as a guest vocalist on the song Bad Sharon from Robbie Williams' 2019 album The Christmas Present. That would have to be true. It is again. He loves singing, Floyd. I just read his biography a few weeks ago and uh, he loves singing, all right, yeah. He's a great character and a great, great boxer. He's overcome a lot as well, Tyson Fury. Yeah, in terms of mental health, he, he thankfully, he speaks openly about it. And uh, he helps a lot of people, I think, as a result. Absolutely, yeah. And question three, on two out of two so far. <laughs> You uh, you're smashing this. Question three is what happens next? And now, I know I say this all the time. How do you do? What happens next on an audio yeah. only platform? Um, I'll describe it the best I can, and if I can get the footage, uh, and not get taken down for copyright, uh, that'll be up on the social media pages once this has been out. I know the clip from the last, uh, the Will Marcus podcast went out at the time of recording today. Um, so what happens next? On the 25th of October, 1995, at the end of round four of a match between Eric Butterbean Esch and Pat Jackson, the bell sounds and the referee approaches to break up the two fighters who are holding on to each other. But what happens next? And this is multiple choice. I, I'd probably guess it. I'll <laughs> wait, I'll wait, I'll wait. <laughs> the referee stumbles, falling between the fighters and through the ropes to the ringside. Is it B, Butterbean throws a punch after the bell, connecting with the side of the referee's head, knocking him down? Or is it C? In an attempt to break the two fighters up, the referee accidentally pushes Butterbean over. It would be B. The ref gets punched in the face. Correct, again. <laughs> he does. I, I, he was, I must have seen it, because it just it, it rang a bell in my head straight away. <laughs> he was down for quite a while. Yeah, he got fairly hammered, yeah. Um, and then, he, thankfully for him, he didn't actually have to do any more that night, because... Um, the last round. At the end of that round, Pat Jackson decided he'd had enough and okay. uh, Butterbean won by TKO. Very good, very good. So, some say he's the first to knock out two people in <laughs> in one Mongo. match. Very good. Uh, three out of three so far. Question four is a who am I? Mm. And this is a boxer. Uh, so th- how this works is you'll get four statements and at the end of those four statements, you can have a guess at who it might be. If it's incorrect, I'll then go for another one and you can guess after that. And you get th- basically you get four guesses. Okay, great. So... This person was born in March 1972. Mm. They competed in the... Writing this down, I think. 
he competed in the super middleweight and light heavyweight divisions. Uh, they won all 46 of their professional fights, 32 by knockout, and fought the likes of Chris Eubank and Roy Jones Jr. And they were the first boxer to unify three of the four major world titles, WBA, WBC, and WBO, at super middleweight, and was the first ring champion in that weight class. Have you got any ideas? Is that the first statement, or is that them all? That's the first four. So, born in March 1972, super middleweight and light heavyweight, uh, won all 46 professional fights, and the first boxer to unify three of the four major world titles at super middleweight division. Right. Doesn't say where he's... Any guesses? Doesn't know where he's from. I was thinking someone like Joe Kilzaghi, but he's too young. Joe isn't that old. So, they are trying to work out the age. 82, 92, 2002. So, 50. 50. Ah, or maybe almost 50, born in March. Yeah. Would you like another one? I would like another one, yeah. I am one of only 15 world champions to retire as an undefeated world champion. Has to be someone I know well. Why don't I know it? Would you like another one? Yes, yes. Their MBE was elevated to a CBE in 2008. Hmm. No. And the final clip, I think you might get it on this. You might you might kick yourself. I'm going to try and without giving you too much of a hint. Yeah. Bear in mind what you said earlier. I think you might get this. Final clue. They're Welsh. Joe Kiltaggy? It is. It is. Okay. Great. Yeah. Oh. I was so so you you said it and I thought if you hadn't gone. Yeah, I didn't. Think... Young, I thought I might just go with go with that. But yeah, it is Joe Kiltaggy. I thought he was a bit younger than that. Actually, I watched. He has a fantastic documentary on Netflix, and I watched that lately. And it's well worth watching. Like, I'll have to go and watch that. Yeah, very ordinary guy growing up. And just, he had a massive heart. He just fought and fought and fought. Trained by himself. His dad coached him. Yeah, I, I, I thought he was... It's a pity he wasn't around against them greats of their time. Like, I know he boxed Eubank in that, but they, he was older at that stage. But yeah, he was a real champion. Yeah, undefeated. Brilliant. I, I'm happy with that. <laughs> four out of four. You're uh, at the top of the leaderboard along with Will. Great. Uh, okay. We'll have a tie-off at the end of the year. If, uh... <laughs> uh, I was doing my research earlier on that quiz. I was com- I don't know why. I mean, Joe Karzaghi is probably before, well, definitely before my generation. I'm 23. Mm-hmm. I was convinced he fought Ricky Hatton for some reason. Ricky Hatton? No, I think... But he wasn't, on, he wasn't on there. I looked at the full list of all his fights. No. He wasn't on there. Hatton fought Mayweather, I think, and got destroyed. That might be the one I was thinking yeah, of, May- yeah. the, that Mayweather mm-hmm. fight. I'm sure Joe Karzaghi would have been around at that time. And maybe he'd talked about it or had done some TV coverage on it. Maybe spoken about Ricky. Yeah, Hatton. yeah, I'd say so. That yeah. must have been it. Yeah. Uh, but you learn something new every day. Yeah. Good on you. I'm happy with that. One final question from me before we go. And okay. it's the question I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone facing a transplant? Okay. I, I'm thinking about it. And I said this before. I think focus on the outcome, not the process. All right. Don't focus on the operation. Don't stress about the operation. Think about six months time. Think about a life without dialysis. Think about, you know, your future, your career, your education, all the things you can do easier and freer. You can still do all these things on dialysis, but with a transplant, think down the road of all the happy endings you're going to have. Because since I got my second transplant, life has been extraordinary, really. Because after nine years on dialysis, life became ordinary and I adapted and I, you know, I was a very healthy person on dialysis. But after I got the transplant down the road, you know, life opened up 
Absolutely. And I appreciate life so much. So that's the outcome of uh, that's proven so kind of worthwhile for me. Like if I think about having a transplant or losing a transplant, oh, hot, torture. You know, they're not fun times, but the outcome is what's important. Very well said again, as you have been throughout the entire podcast. It's been a pleasure to chat to you again, as it was last summer. Um, and as I said, if people haven't seen Transplant Hub Conversations, please go and check it out on YouTube. I'll put the link in the show notes. Darren Cordy, thank you very much. What, what a man, what an inspiration. I'm sure people will be, will be uh, will have learned a lot from you today. Lewis, you're the exact same yourself. Keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'll let you give your voice a rest. It's been, yeah. you've, been, you've, you've fought through again uh, with the, the little coughs throughout this which people may not have heard. If it... <laughs> hopefully not, hopefully not. If you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure you share it with your friends and family and anybody you might know. Share it online, share it with social media. If you'd like to get in touch to come on the podcast, you can do so by emailing transplantstakeonsport at gmail.com or you can get in touch on social media. Facebook and Instagram are at transplantstakeonsportpod and Twitter is at ttospod. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, they're the two most used apps to listen to the podcast on. It would mean a massive amount to me if you could go over there and rate the podcast five stars on those show pages. If you don't think it's five stars, fair enough. I'd uh, I'd rather you told me it wasn't. I can try and make any changes uh, to improve and help you enjoy it more. That is what we aim to do. And Apple Podcasts allow you to leave reviews. So if you would like to leave a review, any five-star reviews will be read out in this section of the podcast. Thank you once again to my guest today, Darren Corley. I've been Lewis Daniels, and you've been listening to Transplants Take on Sport. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.